Collins, the Upgraded Executive Podcast. It's really great to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So, Amy, could you start by giving the audience a little bit about your background? Sure. So, I'm an anti-aging and regenerative physician. I specialize currently in skin health and sexual health using sort of some of the newer treatment modalities like stem cells and energy, you know, heat, energy, things like that. And I've been doing this for a while. But I actually, in the past, was an ER doctor, an emergency room doctor, which was sort of my first job. So what was it like working in the emergency room? It must have been fairly stressful. It was very stressful. So I did that for about 10 years. I'm residency trained in emergency medicine, and I worked for another seven years. It was very stressful. It was good. I enjoyed it. But towards the end, I had three kids in two years. I had twins, and then I met a baby 20 months later. And there became a lot of stress involved in trying to deal with working full time and getting up at three in the morning to go to work. And, you know, just I was eating badly and not exercising and just kind of making bad choices. And I saw myself as sort of becoming more and more unhealthy. And at the same time, I started noticing that my patients who were coming into the emergency department were also kind of in this state of like just high stress, you know, mm-hmm. really unhealthy, like having a hard time, like even making like one more decision because it was so overwhelming. So I realized that in order to kind of help my patients, I actually needed to learn how to help myself and sort of became interested in integrative medicine, preventative medicine, you know, longevity medicine, all of these different words for essentially taking better care of yourself uh, so that you live longer and better. So yeah, we recently introduced Aubrey to Grace. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, that was, that was fascinating. We're sort of well-versed in sort of longevity and, and how important it is. And I found, Amy, that when you speak to people about health and performance. It's sort of interested, but when you start talking about longevity and having a really long health span, I find that people like lean in, like they're super, super interested. Yeah, absolutely. I think for some reason it triggers something different in your brain when you're like, mm. oh wait, I could not only live for longer, but I could be healthier you know, during that time. And I think it's definitely possible with a lot of research that's been done. I'm sure that you and Aubrey talked about some of the really cool stuff that they're learning about and working on in terms of trying to extend not just lifespan, but health span. So how do you move from being a ER doctor into sexual health and longevity? I know you sort of explained some of your call to action, but that seems like quite a big flip over. It was a big flip. And I did it in small doses. But basically, while I was still working full-time in the ER, I started, I became part of a fellowship program in anti-aging and regenerative medicine. Um, and was doing that kind of in my spare time, if you will, <laughs> although I didn't have a lot of spare time. But, you know, conferences, doing a lot of remote trainings as well. And then over a couple of years, I got enough of a foothold in that world that I became comfortable with quitting my emergency department job. And I opened my own clinic. It was mostly kind of, we did a lot of integrative medicine. So we did some like hormone replacement with bioidentical hormones. We did, you know, lifestyle medicine, exercise, nutrition, stress management, that kind of thing. Well, what happened was I kept having patients, they would come back to me after the first few months, like once they were starting to kind of feel a little bit better, just in terms of like their fatigue was better and they're starting to be a little bit more motivated and they're a little bit like their depression's a little bit better, like they're trending towards getting back to baseline and health. And they'd come to me and ask for help with either their skin, their hair, or their sex lives. <laughs> and so I started learning, like, oh my gosh, these people, they're all asking for the same things. And there must be something that I can do putting together all of the tools that I have to help them with those things. So it really kind of evolved over time just because patients kept asking for it. I don't know if you guys do over in the UK, but, you know, we get like a sexual education course, like, I don't know, junior high or something here where you sit down and you learn about like the different body parts and how they work. And then that's 
pretty much it. Like no one else ever really talks about the sexual organ system and like things you want to do to support that and things you can do to keep it healthier and sort of preventative things as well as treatments for that system as a whole in healthy people. And so I, I think it's definitely something that's missing from the curriculum, if you will. You know, to me, that system is just as important as many of the other organ systems that we have. When I first started yeah. seeing patients, you know, I had to kind of pull it out of them. Like I asked them a question, like, how's your sex life? And they'd be like, it's fine. And then I would kind of dive into specifics, you know, like, well, you know, how are your erections as hard as you want them to be? Like, oh, you know, like just getting kind of specific. And after a while, they realized that, like, maybe the things weren't as fine, you know, as they thought. And so they became more mm-hmm. honest with me. You know, and what I found is now, like, I was at a cocktail party this weekend and, like, random people coming up and telling me, like, about their sex lives and about like, people I don't even know. Like, <laughs> so, so now I think it's kind of turned and people are more comfortable. But I'm happy. I'm happy about that. I want them to, you know, to feel like they can talk about that kind of thing. I guess in particular for men, I would imagine it's probably more difficult for men to talk about their sexual performance. I think everyone has a difficulty, but certainly men do. There's concern about bringing that, you know, out into the public or, you know, in, even into doctor's offices. It's also true for women. I mean, women have for, you know, for years have been really kind of just been ignored. Like, you know, no one has even asked if they're enjoying themselves or no one's even asked, like, well, how was this for you? I'm sure that some people have asked, but like as a whole, as a society, they haven't really been looked at too much. So it's both men and women. But I think what's different now is that we actually have some different modalities that we can use, men and women, aside from pharmaceuticals, that can be effective in improving their sexual experiences. And I think that has changed how people are relating to the issue because they're like, oh, well, if if this can be helped, then maybe I should bring this up and talk about it. So what are the most common things you see with both men and women in terms of issues with their sexual health and their overall sexual performance? So for men, erectile dysfunction is definitely the most common thing. And that's, you know, that can be anything from kind of mild, what I call erectile less function, which, you know, you still have function, but maybe it's just not what it used to be, to, you know, actual pretty severe erectile dysfunction. There's all different sort of shades of gray in there. But that's by far the most common thing I see. But I see other things. I see Peyronie's disease, which is it's a scarring disease of the penis where you kind of get curvature and, and plaque formation and pain. And it's actually fairly common and people just don't talk about it. But that's something else that can cause ED. I also see premature ejaculation sometimes, but not as often. Mostly ED and, and men who kind of want to prevent ED from happening. And then for women, it's, again, it can be anything. Women are a little bit, tend to be a little bit more complex as far as what's causing the problem in women. But I see women with low libido or like low sex drive, you know, low arousal, pain with sex or orgasmic dysfunction where they're having a hard time with orgasms or pleasure or some combination of all those things. What's the right word you think? Are there more conditions, would you say? There are diseases. Are there? There's no underlying pathology. Well, there sometimes is. It depends on what's going on. You know, erectile dysfunction, oftentimes, there is underlying pathology. There is, you know, it's an arterial, like your arteries are filled with, like, plaque with atherosclerosis, which happens as you get older. Like, you know, it's the same thing that's causing heart attacks and stroke. That same atherosclerosis causes erectile dysfunction because you don't have good blood flow to the penis. And just general inflammation can cause the cells in the penis to actually die, the smooth muscle cells, so that you're not able to sort of expand properly and have a full erection. So there can be underlying pathology. But yeah, I mean, condition is probably a good thing to say. And then you can figure out whether it's an actual disease or just, you know, like a brief sort of period of time that you're having these symptoms. And are these conditions more prevalent with age? Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All of them are 
more prevalent with age, but I still see people who are fairly young who have some of these things also. So it can happen at any time, but certainly with age, it becomes more common. What's the typical age for a man when you have to have erectile dysfunction? You can, start, you can see him starting to get concerned. Usually over 40 is when it starts to kind of creep into the possibilities. They say that over 40, about 40% of men have some degree of ED. And it doesn't mean, again, that it's full on, like that you can't have an erection. It can be just like maybe it's not lasting as long as you want or maybe it's not quite as hard as you want it to be or just not as reliable. And so, you know, it may sort of be a minor thing, but, you know, over 40, about 40%. And then that number goes up about 10% per decade. So by the time you're 60, it's about 60% of men have ED. You know, you can kind of do the math from there. But it definitely becomes more common as you get older. Oh, wow. So if you listen to Aubrey the Grey and you want to live until you're, you know, 200 plus then. If you're going to live that long, I would argue that you have to be healthy enough to live that long. Yeah. And if you're healthy enough, then you're going to have a less of a risk of a lot of the things that I'm talking about. Because, again, it's all about, you know, systemic inflammation in your body, like, inflammation in your body and the things that sort of happen that cause that ends up leading to some of these things and these problems. In the interview, I'd like to get into PRP and stem cells, but before we explain to the audience what those are and how they can be used, what are some of the things that people can be doing to prevent, you know, erectile dysfunction or, you know, maintain a high libido? Are there some things that they could be doing without using any therapies and, could, you know, what things could they be doing now? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's important to start with thinking about prevention, like you said. Or even if you have mild symptoms, you know, think that those are often reversible. So some lifestyle things. And these are a lot of these are simple things that you probably already know about. The mental component is really important for both men and women to have successful, happy sort of sex lives. So making sure that, you know, you're controlling stress and you're reacting to it properly. And you've got some, maybe you're doing some meditation or some breath work or, you know, yoga, long walks outside, whatever it is that you do that kind of really shuts your brain off. That's actually extremely important because you want to increase that parasympathetic activity, which is that it's the opposite of the fight or flight. You want to be in the like rest and relax phase. That's much more conducive to being ready to have sex. So that's, you know, just kind of getting your mind mentally prepared is, is one thing. Then taking care of your body, again, super kind of ambiguous and vague, but like things like controlling your blood sugar, controlling your blood pressure, your cholesterol, not smoking. You know, smoking cigarettes is one of the worst things you can do for or your erections as well as just your health. And so things like that, exercising. We know that, for instance, men with ED, if you just go out and walk 20 or 30 minutes a day, that actually can significantly reduce your risk of erectile dysfunction. Just walking, like not even like getting your heart rate up that much, just actually getting out and doing some little bit of exercise. Obviously, the more exercise, the better. Making sure you're sleeping. Sleeping is where a lot of your hormones, you know, while you're asleep is where a lot of your hormones are made. So like testosterone, which goes down with age, a lot of it's produced at nighttime. And so if you're not getting good sleep, your growth hormone is not high enough, which is also helping with testosterone and your testosterone is not getting made. I mean, if you don't have testosterone, then you, you know, you have all kinds of problems, including lack of libido and including erectile dysfunction potentially. And then, you know, also things, things like increasing your nitric oxide which nitric oxide is something else that goes down with age. <laughs> After about age 40, we see a big drop in nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is the main chemical, the main kind of chemical that is telling your blood vessels to vasodilate, which means open up. So there's, you know, blood vessels start out small. You get the signal, so they open up and they get bigger, and that lets the blood flow into different areas. So as you can imagine, to have an erection, you actually have to have nitric oxide in the area to get the blood down there. And so 
as you get older, you're able to make less and less nitric oxide. So one of the ways you can get that is from your food. You can actually eat foods that are high in nitrates, which are things like green leafy vegetables and beets and even like pomegranates and dark chocolate. But one thing that can be a problem is people who are using antiseptic mouthwash every day, like Listerine or mouthwash would kill the bacteria in your mouth, because you actually need the good bacteria in your mouth to be able to make use of the nitric oxide in food. That the bacteria are like one of the things in that process that make you able to make use of it. So if you're using mouthwash every day, it doesn't matter if you're eating all these green leafy vegetables because you still can't make nitric oxide. So that's kind of a fun trick as well. Well, I never knew that. Yeah, it's a good one. I like that one. And then, you know, keeping your hormones in balance as well, whether you, know, you, you can do that through with the doctor, but making sure that your testosterone levels are high enough, making sure that your estrogen, progesterone, things like that for women are in the right range are going to be really helpful for keeping your interest in sex as well as keeping your sexual organs in good working order. You mentioned hormones a few times. It seems like those are really pivotal to having good, not only sexual health, but good health in general. Yeah, absolutely. Those are always changing throughout our lives, especially with women. When you hit about 35 or 40, you start having lower levels of progesterone and testosterone. And then after menopause, which is usually 50, 55, then that's when estrogen really drops. And that, when that happens, we see a huge increase in sexual complaints in women because all of a sudden you don't have the stimulus to the vagina and the tissue to keep those tissues healthy. They start to kind of, they actually atrophy is what they call it. You actually get like thinning of the vaginal wall. It's, you know, it's like if you don't work out for a long time, your muscles get atrophied. Well, the same thing happens if you don't have enough estrogen with the vaginal tissues. So lack of estrogen is huge for women. And then testosterone is, is really important for men for erections. And that starts to go, you know, go down really after about age 40. This all happens about age 40, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately. But, but, you know, again, it depends on the person and depends on what else they're doing to try to keep some of those things high. How can people effectively measure their hormones, Amy? Because I think in the UK particularly, and it may be the same in other parts of the world, now we have general practitioners. They will give you either some tests, but not all the tests, and maybe some of the wrong tests. And then when your test results come back, they say, oh, you're in the normal range. Yeah, I mean, looking for someone who's very familiar with using bioidentical hormones, and bioidentical just means, you know, you're, if you're going to treat with hormones, you're getting the hormones that exactly match the hormones your body already makes. So, for instance, a bioidentical estrogen is going to match a woman's normal estrogen that they already make. It's just being given from the outside versus a non-bioidentical estrogen which was like the old Primarin, which was one of the, sure you guys have that there, but it's basically what was given to women for a long time. This actually comes from horse urine. It's made from horse urine, like proteins and things. And so it's, you know, maybe not the best like thing to be putting in your body. So I really favor the bioidentical hormones for that reason. So finding someone who's very familiar with those specific, you know, those kinds of therapies, you know, you can check hormones in blood, you can check it in urine, you can check it in saliva even. And all of those tests can be meaningful if you have a doctor who knows how to interpret them and knows kind of how to shoot for optimal, like you said, like looking for, you know, what's going to make you feel the best and what's going to be helpful long term versus just are you in that normal range. It's actually kind of interesting. The Over the last 50 years, we have had as a population, like in the world, our testosterone levels in men have gone down quite a bit, like just population averages have gone down. And what's happened is that the labs, at least the labs here in the United States, what they've done about it is they've shifted 
the normal reference ranges so that now they're lower. So before, you know, 50 years ago, if you had a testosterone, you could have a much higher testosterone and that was more normal. Now a much lower testosterone is considered normal because the population as a whole has a much lower level. And they're looking at population norms when they calculate those normal levels. So I think your point about don't just look at normal, but look at optimal is a really good one. Form play a factor in terms of sexual health, dopamine levels, erectile dysfunction, stimulation. People always ask me, what's the right amount of porn? <laughs> I, <was> like, <laughs> I think that's probably like person specific. But I definitely have, you know, 25 year old patients who they come to me for erectile dysfunction and, you know, there's nothing physiologically wrong with them. And I start to delve into their porn history. You know, these guys are watching porn for three or four hours a day. And they're just like, like you said, you have this dopamine, your brain becomes sensitized to the stimuli. So you need more and more and more and more of it. But when you eventually have like a real person in front of you, that person's actually not enough stimuli. And so you can't get an erection because your brain is just like, I need more, I need more. So, you know, whether or not there's, such thing as a porn addiction, which people kind of debate. I definitely see that, you know, porn overuse can cause erectile dysfunction and, you know, can cause any number of, you know, relationship problems and things like that because then everyone feels bad about themselves and it's like a whole thing that can happen. Is there an optimal amount of sex that somebody should have, men or women, and equally same with masturbation or semen retention? I don't think that there's necessarily an optimal level. I will say that a lot of the studies that have been done looking at, like, the health benefits of sex they're usually looking at one to two times a week, and that's either partner sex or even masturbation, as long as you're looking at orgasm and ejaculation and things like that. So one to two times a week seems to be sort of what is studied. I, but certainly you can, I have, you know, people have, have sex every day and they feel great. And some people it's once a month and they still feel great. A lot of it has to do with how you feel. As far as the semen retention thing, a lot of people ask about that because there's a lot of concerns about, you know, you're losing energy with ejaculations and you're losing electrolytes or different things. And I don't know how much actual science is behind that, but I would say that if you're trying to get pregnant, or a couple trying to get pregnant, then you usually want to make sure that it's, it's at least three days in between you know, periods of sex and ejaculation so that you're able to store up enough sperm for it to be effective. Have you watched Game Changers on Netflix? I have not watched Game Changers, no. Nick, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure they were making a correlation with diet and the strength and length of time that sportsmen who they specifically monitored were having erections for. Does that correlate with any of the research that, that you've done or come across? I haven't seen that show, but certainly at a high, it seems that a high, you know, a high plant diet is going to be helpful for a lot of reasons. It's going to be less inflammatory for a lot of people, and it's also you're going to get more good nitric oxide, like I'm talking about, from the green leafy vegetables and the plants that we see in that kind of diet. So for that reason, it, it makes sense from the nitric oxide standpoint. You know, we also know that people who have poor diets, whether that's lots of, uh, you know, trans fats or sugars or even the wrong kinds of meats and things like that, they, over time, are going to be more prone to develop atherosclerosis and inflammation in the blood vessels as well as in the, like in the penis, for instance, in the cells, they're going to be more likely to cause ED. So I'm not surprised by that. But I wouldn't say necessarily you have to go all the way vegetarian. I would just say you want to have a very clean diet, whether or not you eat meat. You could do it either way. Sexual hormones, sexual performance, get it. But then you also see people, a lot, as you mentioned earlier, that are really focused around improving their skin and hair. How are those two things linked? 
there's several things. First of all, a lot of the same things that cause problems with erectile dysfunction and sexual dysfunction in women are the exact same things that are going to cause problems with skin and with hair. So things like, again, like nitric oxide, that's important for your skin. You have to have that in your skin as well in order for it to get good blood flow to your skin. So the things you're going to do for sexual function are also going to benefit your skin. Things like lack of vitamin D, something else really necessary for skin is also important for making testosterone, which is important for sexual health. So things like that, like hormonal balance is really important. Like estrogen, for instance, we know that in, if you have lack of estrogen, it causes vaginal atrophy. So you get, you know, thinning of the vaginal tissues. Well, the exact same thing happens on your face if you don't have enough estrogen. So once you kind of go through menopause for women, there's a sharp increase in the thinning of the skin, in the sagging of the skin. All that is because your skin needs estrogen in order to build collagen and elastin and a lot of those sort of main components to it. So the lack of estrogen becomes important. And then again, you know, same kind of idea with hair. A lot of male pattern baldness, for instance, and a lot of even female baldness is hormone related. And so we're looking at hormones for everything from your hair to your skin to your sexual function. And so, and a lot of the treatments as well, when I want to talk about those, I use a lot of the same treatments for all three parts of the body just with sort of little tweaks here and there. So there's actually so many more similarities between those three areas than there are differences that I do them all because initially because patients asked me to do them. And then later I was like, actually, the treatments are pretty similar. So it just makes sense. So what's the root cause of gray hair, Amy? Is there something that we can put it down to from a hormonal point of view? Not yet. Gray hair is due to melanin and lack of melanin that is happening with aging. There's a lot of research being done Currently, a lot of animal studies and things that have shown some different proteins and such that seem to be able to be adjusted and you can change gray hair. But so far, in humans, we haven't been able to change gray hair you know, very reliably. I'll be able to slow down that gray importance from starting to get somewhere <laughs> on the side. <laughs> There's definitely a connection between stress and gray hair. You know, you've seen mm. the guys who've gone into office, you know, with a head of, of brown hair and they come out of office with a head of full of gray hair. There's definitely a connection between stress and certainly keeping your stress as low as possible could be helpful. But there's also genetic components that you can't really do much about and, and you know, probably some other lifestyle environmental factors that we don't know about or I don't know about. But I think eventually there'll be some fixes for us out there for gray hair, aside from just dyeing it. But they're not really quite ready for prime time yet. Could you tell the audience about some of the therapies you use, in particular stem cell therapy and PRP to help? people with the conditions around some of their sexual health and also for their skin health? So yeah, I use a lot of these regenerative therapies, which is regenerative essentially just means getting your own body to heal itself and, you know, kind of using different stimulants to do that. So PRP, which is, you know, widely available, I think now all over the world, stands for platelet-rich plasma. And that is basically just me taking some blood from you and I centrifuge it, I spin it, and then I separate out the red blood cells from the plasma and you get this layer of platelets, which are concentrated in there. I can just pull those platelets out as a concentration, and that's platelet-rich plasma, or PRP. The platelets have a lot of growth factors in there, so they're used to stimulating healing. If you think about it, you know, if you cut your arm, you know, it bleeds, the platelets come in, they cause the blood clot, you know, they cause a stab, you know, they stop the blood flow from flowing, but they also release all these growth factors into the tissue around it to tell the, the cells around there to, hey, we need to increase collagen, we need to increase, we need to get some more blood vessels in here, we need some better blood flow, you know, essentially starts that healing cascade. 
and that's the platelets and their growth factors. So we can just use PRP, and I use that as a base for all my procedures, whether that's skin injections, hair injections, or even a sexual injection. But then we can also add to that things like stem cells. And that stem cells are going to depend on where you live because the regulations are different everywhere. But the idea behind stem cells is you already have stem cells, you know, all over your body. And they're the cells that are kind of like the master cells. They are responsible for the upkeep of every organ and tissue in your body. So that as you get older, as you get illnesses or injuries, the stem cells are the ones that can replicate and can, you know, fix it and make more of that tissue. But what happens is as you get older, your body becomes, you lose some stem cells and the ones that you have are not as active. So you still have them, but they're just not like doing as much of the creation and regeneration as they used to. So what we're trying to do with all these procedures is get your own stem cells that are already there to become more active so that they start to repair and regenerate and kind of rejuvenate various tissues. So, for instance, I could take some stem cells from you from your bone marrow or from your fat, like a little liposuction, and then I could process those cells and put them back, and I could do injections into your penis, for instance. That's the sort of a stem cell tea shot, we call it. We're basically just injecting, and, and I use numbing cream, and it's actually not. It's actually, it's actually one of the easier procedures for everyone. And for women, we do the same thing. We actually inject the stem cells, the PRP, and other biologics like amniotic products or exosomes, or which are kind of more growth factor serums and things, injected into the clitoris and the anterior vaginal wall, which are you know both areas that are sensitive. We numb it first with some numbing cream. And what we see over time, over the next few months, is that you get increased blood flow into those areas. Sometimes, at least in, in some studies, you have increased nerve repair and regeneration. So it can help with sensation. It can help with, you know, erections. It can help with sensitivity. It can have just sort of longer-lasting erections, better sexual experiences, more pleasure. With women, we can actually even see improvement in stress urine or incontinence, which is like when you cough or sneeze and you kind of pee a little bit, just have a little bit of lack of control. That can be improved as well with some of these injections because we're injecting right around the urethra. Amy, so when would you use PRP versus using stem cells? I think PRP is a great first step. You know, certainly, you know, most of our patients here, I live in Utah in Park City, and most of our patients here, probably 90% are coming from out of state or out of the country. And I do phone consults with them first. And I tell them, you know, I give them a lot of the sort of things they can do on their own because a lot of people, you know, are can't travel in or they just are not wanting to or you know not able to yet start somewhere local and try just PRP. So that's great for skin. You know, it can help with skin. You can do injections. You can do microneedling with PRP, which basically just it gives your little bitty tiny needles that gets the PRP into the outer layers of the skin to help increase collagen and elastin and hyaluronic acid, which are all the components, again, that as you get older, you start making less and less of. So it just kind of gives your skin improvements in skin texture and tone and color and sunspots and pigment can be evened out, scarring, things like that. So PRP is a great first step for anything, whether it's hair, skin, sexual injections, and you can go somewhere local for that. That's that's easy. And I think for people who have want more or are needing more, then a good next step for a lot of people is either something like the exosomes, which don't come from the patients that come from umbilical cord cells, or the patient's own stem cells can be a next Step, you know, it's, it's more regenerative power, but it is also more expensive and, and sometimes more invasive. So you kind of have to balance, you know, what makes sense for each person. If you do a PRP therapy, what happens if you have low platelets? Does that matter? It does matter. Very good question. So we don't generally do PRP if we know you have low platelets. So if you're less than about 100,000 platelets per whatever the unit is, 
then we just it's just not going to be as effective for you because you you just don't have as much you know platelet activity. We're trying to concentrate the platelets about six to eight times what you have in your whole blood. So looking for you know you usually have somewhere in the two hundred thousand range of platelets and per unit that we're measuring. And so we're looking to have you know a million or so when we make PRP out of that blood. So low platelets is something that we just probably wouldn't do this treatment for you. I also don't treat active smokers. If you're actively smoking cigarettes, then I don't treat you because your platelets are not going to be as robust. Your healing is not going to be as good and you're not going to have as good a result. And then the last thing I want to do is have you spend money on something and then not get a good result and, you know, and get mad at me for it. So I don't treat smokers. <laughs> I tell them to please stop smoking and then come back and I'll see you. Same thing with just, real, you know, really sick people in general. If you're, you know, heavy, heavy drinkers, you know, diabetics that are not well controlled, like anyone who doesn't really have, doesn't have a pretty healthy body, it's not as, as good a candidate. Because if you think about it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like fertilizing your garden. So PRP is like fertilizer, you know, your stem cells and your cells that are already in your garden, we're just trying to fertilize those cells with PRP. But if you don't have, if your garden is a complete mess, your soil is a mess, if you're eating garbage, if you're not exercising, if you're overweight, if you're smoking, you know, you're doing all the things that are not going to get your garden healthy. I can throw fertilizer at you all day and it's not going to do anything. So you do have to do, you know, patients have to do their part of the job in order for my part to be successful. Whenever I mention stem cells to people, they say, ooh, is that even legal? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. In the beginning, that kind of George Bush era, the stem cells they're talking about were embryonic stem cells. So embryonic stem cells are very different, totally different than what we're talking about now. Embryonic stem cells like literally came from an eight-day-old embryo. So like a baby before it was a baby, you know, and people had a lot of ethical problems with that, obviously. The other issue with embryonic stem cells is they actually have been shown to be, in some cases, they can form cancers, uh, these weird like teratomas that have like all different kinds of tissue in there and all these things. So that kind of stem cells, those are still being researched. They're still being used in the lab. There are some people still, you know, studies being done, but that's not what we're talking about now. We're talking about adult stem cells, uh, which are called mesenchymal stem cells or MSCs. Are, again, are found in every tissue of your body. We can easily get to them in your bone marrow and your fat, and we can use them. As far as whether it's legal, that depends on where you are and what it is you're doing with them. So in the United States, for instance, we're allowed to use bone marrow-derived stem cells for specific procedures. They are The FDA does not like us using fat-derived stem cells as a nation. Gave us three years to phase out using fat-derived stem cells because they said that, you know, even if I get your stem cells from your fat and put those stem cells back in your body, somehow those stem cells have turned into a drug, you know, during that hour while they were out of your body. And if it's a drug, the FDA wants, that's the federal drug agent, you know, administration, they want to be able to regulate that drug. And so it's a whole thing. But yeah, so right now, unless things change, and there's court cases going on in the United States that actually may change it, but unless they change, then we can't do fat derives themselves after November of this year. And in some countries, like probably in the UK, a lot of stem cells are not being done, uh, whereas other countries like South America, Central America, places like that, they have even less rules and they're doing all kinds of different things with themselves. So what's the difference between fat derived and bone marrow derived in terms of it going back into your body? Surely both are out of your body for a period of time and wouldn't both then the drugs, even though they're not drugs, clearly. So what's happened is for years, doctors were using bone marrow 
you know, bone-marrow stem cells for, like, different, you know, like, for treating things like leukemias and lymphomas and sickle cell anemia and things like that. Essentially, doctors are allowed to move tissues in the body. You know, you do, you move intestines to make bladders. You move skin somewhere else to do, you know, to make skin grafts. But doctors are allowed to move tissue around. And so bone marrow transplants have been used for forever, for many, many years, for decades, and have been, you know, it was kind of figured out how to do it, and it was considered safe. When we started using the fat-derived stem cells for regenerative medicine, the FDA essentially said, well, we haven't studied that, so we don't know if it's safe. So even though the actual cells that we're getting from the bone marrow and the fat are very similar, they're both these mesenchymal stem cells, they have a little bit different growth factors and signals they're sending out, but they're essentially very similar. Because of they don't have a long history of using fat for other purposes and disease treatments and things like that, the FDA is just, that's, they're more worried about it just for that reason. Got it. And you mentioned the embryonic stem cells there. Is there a difference between gathering your stem cells, say, when you're a baby versus when you might be 18 versus when you might be 60 years old? Yeah, absolutely. So umbilical cord stem cells. So umbilical is different than embryonic. So embryo, remember, okay. it's an eight-day-old embryo before it's even a baby. It's like, you know, microscopic. That's embryonic, yeah. and no one's doing that. Umbilical cord stem cells are when you have a full-term baby, baby's delivered, everything's good, mom donates the placenta and the umbilical cord, or, you know, gives it or keeps it, and essentially uses the cells in that cord of placenta from a full-term baby. So those are actually still considered to be adult stem cells, even though they're from a baby, but they're still similar to what you would get from you, for instance, but they're stronger. So they have more ability to send out growth factors, to be active, to you know, create regeneration. So to answer your question, yes, if you have stem cells from a baby versus from a 40-year-old versus from an 80-year-old, you're absolutely going to have better results in general if you had the exact same number of each cell, et cetera, from the younger cells because they're just more able to create that change. So anybody listening to this that is interested in stem cell therapy for whatever purpose in the future, maybe you should think about having their stem cells extracted soon as possible, even though they might not need them until later on in life. Yes and no. You certainly can do that, and some people are storing them. In the U.S., that's become kind of a problem because there's all these, again, regulatory issues with storing stem cells and all this stuff. But think about the stem cells that we're using, these mesenchymal stem cells. What's cool about them is that you can actually get stem cells from someone else and put them in your body, and you don't have an immune reaction to them. So, for instance, you know, I could get umbilical cord stem cells from baby X, that's not even related to me, and because those cells are not immune reactive, your immune system doesn't even see them for a little, a long time, I can put those cells in my body and I can use them almost like they were my own cells. So it's different than like a blood transplant, for instance, where you have to match everything exactly and you can't use someone else's blood unless you're like perfect, you know, instinct kind of thing. With stem cells, you actually can use these, what they call allogeneic, which means someone, the donor is different than the recipient. So what's good about that is as these therapies get, you know, there's so much research being done, and as these therapies come online, you will have access to an abundance of stem cell products that are not from your own body, they're from someone else, but they will still be able to help you heal without having to necessarily store your own cells. Really interesting. And this is one of the reasons why I love doing this show, because you learn so many new things from experts. Because I was always under the impression, Amy, that they had to be your stem cells. Right. The fact that you could use somebody else's 
incredible. But then I was thinking, increasingly I've seen these sort of like placenta stem cell banks being set up. So when a baby's born, you take their placenta and then get frozen, I guess. Why are those things becoming so popular if you could use some of the other stem cells? I love it. That's a good question. So that's a little bit different. Those stem cells that you're going to get from that, the reason that those can be helpful is because the stem cells that you might want to use later are what are called hemopoietic stem cells. So that's different than the mesenchymal stem cells. Heme means blood. So hemopoietic, basically those are the stem cells that make your blood. So the stem cells that make your blood, the hemopoietic stem cells, they actually do have to be matched from person to person. So, for instance, if you have a baby, you keep this placenta and you keep the stem cells that are in there. You keep all the stem cells. There's the hematopoietic, there's the mesenchymal, there's all the stem cells. Later on, if that child were to get sick with something like leukemia or something like that, where it was its body was needing more, you know, more blood to be made by stem cells, you could use the stem cells from that placenta that was stored for that same person and have like a ready a ready transplant of stem cells. So it's important to have matching stem cells for blood disorders, but it's not important to have matching stem cells for the other things we're talking about, for regenerating skin, hair, joint pain, you know, musculoskeletal pain, even some of the autoimmune disorders and other things we're using stem cells for, not me, but other people. You don't have to have matched stem cells for those things. So we mentioned stem cells within the context of, you know, sexual health and in terms of skin etc. But what other things can people use stem cells for to heal? So the most common things that people are using stem cells for all over the world are to treat musculoskeletal pain. So any kind of joint pain or, you know, tendon pain, muscle pain, a lot of like arthritis, a lot of, you know, you've got a fasciitis or a tendonitis or, you know, you've got a bum shoulder or you've got back pain from different things. So there's a, quite a bit of research out there that supports uh, using stem cells for that. And that's so my partner who's here, I'm actually at the office, Dr. Harry Adelson, who I work with, and he spoke at the same summit last year that I did. But he spoke about using stem cells to treat like neck pain, back pain, shoulder pain, elbow pain, knee pain, you know, essentially musculoskeletal pain using stem cells. It's probably the most common way that people are using stem cells just internationally. And then there are a lot of other things that are being investigated, you know, in everything from looking at stem cells for like neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease or multiple sclerosis and different, you know, essentially the autoimmune disorders seem to respond well. So there's a lot of research into all of those things, but they're not as commonly used currently, at least not in the United States. Is it possible to take stem cells intravenously, so directly into bloodstream? Yeah, absolutely. You can do your own stem cells intravenously. You can do, you know, umbilical cord stem cells, you know, exosomes, which again are kind of like growth factors from stem cells, but they're from umbilical cord cells. All those can be given intravenously. Again, there's a lot of regulatory issues, and we can, at least here in the U.S., we can't claim to be treating a specific disease. The FDA doesn't love doing IV stuff, and especially if you say, I'm going to put these stem cells in to treat your musculosclerosis or whatever. So there's kind of some regulatory issues, but yes, it can be done, and it is being done everywhere around the world. I was at a small group session with David Sinclair. Do you guys know who he is? And yeah. he wrote Lifespan, and he's a very brilliant PhD anti-aging researcher at Harvard. And I was in a small group session with him a few months ago, and somebody asked, basically made the comment, like, you know, shouldn't we, you know, why are we trying to stop aging? Like, 
it's a beautiful process. It's a normal process. Like we should be embracing aging and, you know, all these things. And he was just like, what are you talking about? A beautiful oh, yeah. process. Like your whole body is shutting down. Like your organs are shutting down. Like it's a horrible process. We should definitely stop it. <laughs> so yeah, same kind yeah. of like, like very indignant, like, yes, yeah. we should stop it. <laughs> if stem cell therapy has become incredibly popular and say the cost comes right down, could we just keep applying stem cell therapy after therapy after therapy to continually keep us young and, and help expand the human lifespan? There's some early evidence. There was a recent study that came out that showed that doing IV uh, stem cell therapy was actually did increase frailty in older people. So you had improvement in how far they could walk and, you know, their strength and essentially like all the signs of frailty with age that happened. They did some IV stem cell therapies and noted significant changes in frailty just in that short period of time. So I think that there's definitely some evidence, and I think that it makes sense that there could be a preventative component to using things like some of these umbilical cord stem cells, exosomes, you know, stem cells and things that are one more useful sources. You know, it's the same kind of thing about the shared blood and that some of the experiments that are being done with that, the older person getting the younger person's blood. Like, that's kind of the same idea. I think it certainly could be helpful. I don't think it's the only thing we should be doing. Certainly, there are a lot of ways to try to, you know, halt the aging process. But I do think we'll start to see even more research coming out about using stem cell therapies and these other regenerative therapies as preventative therapies and not just, you know, to treat actual problems. Amy, if people want to find out more, where's best is to find you? So I am very active on Instagram at Dr. Amy B. Killen. Love to have people come see me there. And then I also I have a few websites that my sort of main gateway website is Dr. Amy Killen, which again is just K-I-L-L-E-N, DrAmyKillen.com. Those are probably the two easiest ways and then I can route you from there to you know, other areas and sections. What are the three tips you would give to any executive or entrepreneurs looking to increase their own personal and professional performance? I think the three tips are going to really go back to the basics and it's kind of a boring answer, but I think sleep, something like meditate or something for your mind, like get yourself where you can get into that sort of deeper space of relaxation and stop eating garbage food and exercise. It's, you know, it's facing the things that we know about. And I think yeah. if you do that, it's going to solve, you know, 90% of the problems that we have. Awesome. Thank you, Amy. That was an amazing interview. Thank you. Thank you for your time. You're Thank you. Remember, if you would like to access our content one week before it's released, please leave your details at www.upgradedexecutive.com forward slash subscribe and we will send you a special link so you can access the videos one week before we officially release them. You can also follow us on all of our social channels at Connect with UE and also our website at www.upgradedexecutive.com.